Well, this morning it's starting to get scary. We're looking at the justice of God. Next week, for Father's Day, the wrath of God. (laughs) And in God's providence, God wants it that way. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 145. If I were to tell you that I knew for certain you were going to court and I was going to be there and the person next to you was going to be there, in fact, everyone who is here is going to be there and everyone who is out there is going to be there and that every person who has ever lived or ever will live is going to be there everyone you would think now where is that well if you are a believer right now you may get raptured or if you die before the rapture you will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ. But let's say some of you are deceived about your salvation and at the rapture you are not taken and you are left behind. Then what? Well, you have to go through the tribulation and some because they realize what they have done, may repent and give their lives to Christ during the tribulation, but that doesn't get them raptured. And many of those people will die martyrs during the tribulation. What happens to you if you die in the tribulation? Well, if all the believers before the tribulation are resurrected and raptured, And given glorified bodies, what will happen to you if you die a martyr during that time? Well, when the end of the tribulation is over, you are resurrected at the second coming. But what happens if you reject Christ and you never accept Christ? You die, you go into the grave... And since you aren't a believer, you aren't resurrected at the rapture, you aren't resurrected at the second coming. What happens to you then? Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6 tells us, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image had not received the mark on their forehead and, and on their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's what happens to believers. The rest do not come to life until the thousand years are completed. And then what happens? The Revelation 20.11 tells us, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, and every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You will be there on that day, every one of you, even the babies you're holding, even the toddlers in Sunday school class, every single person you see driving down the freeway, everyone you see walking on the sidewalk, every neighbor, every friend, every enemy will all be there. And you will either be serving as judge and jury, standing with Christ, passing judgment on both men and angels, or you will be standing before the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire to be judged and punished. There are no two ways about it. It will happen to everyone on that day. There is one thing that you can be absolutely sure of, and that is judgment is coming. Jay Packer asked these two important questions in his work, Knowing God. Do you believe in divine judgment? By which I mean, do you believe in a God who acts as judge? He goes on to say, many it seems do not. Speak to them of God as father, a friend, a helper, one who loves us despite all our weaknesses and folly and sin, and their faces light up. You are on their wavelength at once. But speak to them of a God as judge, and they frown and shake their heads. Their minds recoil from such an idea. They find it repellent and unworthy, end quote. And that is how many people are today. The church as a whole is ignoring the justice of God. They don't even want to talk about it. In our feel-good, sensual age of Christianity, no one wants to talk about God as judge of the living and the dead. No one even wants to think about it. Who wants to focus on God as the one who will slay the majority of people who have ever lived? Who wants to think of God as a God who will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished? And the answer to that question is everyone who loves God. That's who. Everyone who truly loves God loves God's justice because God is just as just as he is loving we do not have permission from God to make him in our own image. We do not have the right to ignore some of his attributes for selfish reasons. Especially the most frequently mentioned attribute of God in all the Bible. Which is God the judge. We must face it. We must accept it. And we must 
conform our lives to it. Now before we look at Psalm 145 and the justice of God, I have a confession to make. Justice is not mentioned explicitly in Psalm 145. And when I say that, some of you are thinking, well, why are you preaching on it then? There's other attributes that I would have really liked to preach on that aren't in the text that I'm not going to preach on. So you might wonder why I am preaching on this attribute since it's not explicitly mentioned when I am not preaching on others which are not explicitly mentioned. Well, I have singled out God's justice to preach on this morning because though it's not mentioned specifically, it's implicitly and absolutely implied in the text. And if you have your Bible, you can look at verse 20. We have already looked at several attributes which are inseparably linked to God's justice. We have looked at his righteousness. We have looked at his holiness. Holiness is God's The perfection of God's moral purity. But when holiness begins to be related to creatures, it becomes justice. That's what justice is. Holiness in action. And in verse 20, the justice of God is necessarily implied as a precursor to the punishment of the wicked. Look at verse 20 of Psalm 145. The text says, The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Here we have a promise that God will reward some who love him. He will keep them. The others he will destroy. And that necessitates God's justice, even though the word itself does not appear in the text. So let me give you an artificial outline that is not derived from the text. Two points that you should know about the justice of God. Know that your God is just and know that you must live in light of his justice. So let's look at this whole topic. We'll be kind of traveling around, but I just want to first discuss justice. Uh, A lot of us, you know, understand we have the justice system or we talk about, you know, this is just or that is just or that's not or unjust or they weren't treated justly or fairly. We use a lot of terms, but a lot of times we haven't really thought through what justice is. So let's talk about that a little bit and then we'll look at some scriptures to see that God is in fact just. A.H. Strong defines justice as God's holiness exercised towards his creatures. When you examine the justice of God, you discover you are really talking about his righteousness. The fact that God always does right according to his standard. And his moral purity, which is his holiness, is, is... The quality of him being uh, without flaw, without contradiction to his moral purity. All of these two, uh, righteousness and holiness, are all 
part of God's justice because they define God's justice. Because God is holy, he has to make sure all of creation conforms to his holiness, especially moral creatures, which are angels, demons, and men. And you might call God himself just in and of himself. This would be to describe God's individual or personal justness. God is just in and of himself. Apart from what he does to others, apart from his actions towards his creatures, God himself is just. Now when you speak of the justice of God, just of himself, that is righteousness. But when righteousness and holiness are directed towards creatures, it's justice. Now when you speak of God's righteousness and you speak of his holiness, and you speak of how that is manifested to others, this is called his rectoral justice. That is, it is a reference to God's moral rule of the entire universe that he is going to rectify everything and make it right. He is going to exercise his perfect moral purity on other things that he has created and force them to be conformed to his moral purity. Millard Erickson describes the two kinds of God's justice, the the justice of God in and of himself and the justice of God directed towards others in this phrase. God is, in other words, like a judge who as a private individual adheres to the law of society. And his official capacity ministers that same law, applying it to others. So God is just in that he conforms, and then God is the judge of others, making sure they conform. Now you need to know that when you start studying the justice of God, that philosophers and theologians like to talk about two different ways justice is administered to people. That one kind is called egalitarian justice, and another kind is distributive justice. Let me explain these a bit. Often when teaching or preaching, um, let's say on God's sovereignty, especially in the area of predestination, that God has chosen some before the foundation of the world to be saved and glorified. People have a problem with that, and they often come up and they say, Well, Jack, you know, this bothers me. This kind of causes me to bristle because it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. And there are several reasons why they feel this way. And the first is, is they fail to remember that salvation is by grace and mercy not justice. Salvation is by grace and mercy, not justice. Fairness is a call for justice. Grace and mercy are unearned and undeserved. Therefore, God is not obliged to save anyone. No one deserves to be saved. He saves certain people for his own good pleasure, not because it's fair or because it's just 
or because people deserve it or they even deserve a chance. They don't. Secondly, people fail to realize that demanding that God be fair, they're really asking God to judge them and cast them into hell. The cry for fairness is really a cry for the justice of God. And if God were to give us what was just right now, we would all be in the lake of fire burning for all eternity. Thirdly, they have adopted a false view of God's justice, thinking that God's justice is an egalitarian justice, but it is not. You ask, well, what does that mean? Egalitarian justice says everyone gets exactly the same thing. And many ask for this kind of judgment, judgment not realizing that they are condemning themselves. We don't want exactly the same thing. We don't want egalitarian justice. They err because they take egalitarian view of justice and try to apply it to grace and mercy, which doesn't work. This cannot be done because judgment is always earned, but grace and mercy are neither earned nor deserved. The greatest problem, though, is that egalitarian justice is just not taught in the Bible. That always puts a damper on things, doesn't it? Many people assume egalitarian justice is true, not because they have studied the scriptures and found that, oh yes, God always treats somebody the same. You can't find that in the Bible. You can, tr- you can find in the Bible that God treats everyone with equity, That is, according to his just standard, you can find out that God treats everyone without partiality. That means no one gets to escape his justice. But it is not true that God treats everyone equally. Do you remember that uh, when the, in the rebellion of the sons of Korah, how they all stood up in front of Moses and uh, they were lusting for power and they spoke against uh, Moses and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them? And then the earth opened up and swallowed up all their families and all their possessions. Has God ever done that since then? Do you remember how God struck Herod for his pride so that he was eaten by worms and then died in that order? I mean, have we ever been proud? Do you really want to be struck by worms so you are eaten and then die? Think about Ananias and Sapphira. They show up in the church. They plot to lie. They do. They are struck dead. Has God always struck every liar dead in the church? Well, here we all are. No. God does not treat all men equally. And thankfully so, we all be dead. Eaten by fire, swallowed up in the earth, eaten by worms, struck dead. Now, God is always just, but God does not always execute his justice in the same way. The Bible teaches us that God's justice is what is called distributive justice, not egalitarian justice. Distributive justice says that God must judge everyone, but the time, the place, The way and the sentence may be different. 
In other words, God has to punish sin because by his nature he is just, but he doesn't have to punish sin immediately, and he doesn't have to punish every sin in the same way when he does decide to punish it. A judge may choose to sentence two criminals to two different sentences, even though they've committed the same crime. Maybe one criminal is uh, some guy who has, uh, you know, broken the speed limit for the first time. He's humble, he's scared, he comes to court, you know, I'm so sorry, it's the first ticket I've ever had, and what do you want me to do? He, he respects the judge, he honors the judge, he looks humble, he looks broken, and so the judge says, well, you only have to pay court costs, you're dismissed, don't do it again. Some other man comes up in there, this is his 50th speeding ticket. He doesn't even have a license. He's stubborn, hard-hearted, disrespectful to the judge in the court. He hammers him with everything. He gives him the full extent of the law. Now, each person received justice from the judge. But their sentences were not the same. God has freedom to do that. God has to be just, but he does not have to treat each sinner exactly in the same way, at the same time, and deal out the same sentence. This does not mean God is not just, and we must be careful not to accuse God of not being just because we don't see him treating people exactly the same way or dealing out the same consequences upon them now. Remember those... In the last times that Peter speaks about, in Second Peter chapter three, turn there. Second Peter chapter three. These are the mockers of the last times. In Second Peter three, chapter three through seven, Peter says, "Know this first of all." That in the year 2003, that's kind of a paraphrase, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now, just stop there for a second. What's happening is the mockers come and they say, hey, there is no God who is judge. Everything's continuing as it always has been. I mean, you know, I dare you, God, to judge me, you know, and blaspheme God and dare God and threaten God and think that they can wear out the patience of God trying to provoke him to anger when, because God doesn't send down a lightning bolt and incinerate him on the spot where he's not just. He doesn't even exist. And Peter says, it escapes their notice. That there's fossils on top of Mount Everest. The flood happened. And then he says this in verse 7. 
But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God is actually keeping the world waiting for the exact right time to judge it. Because they haven't seen God do anything, because they even mock God and live in rebellion against God, and because they aren't judged immediately, that does not mean God is not unjust. It just means their judgment is accumulating. That's all. That's like saying, well, all the events in history never happened because I didn't see them. Thomas Watson, in his theology of body of divinity, points out, If God lets men prosper a while in their sin, his vial of wrath is all the while filling. His sword is all the while being sharpened. And though God may forbear men a while, yet long forbearance is no forgiveness. The longer God is in taking his blow, the heavier it will be at last. As long as there is eternity, God has time enough to reckon with his enemies. Justice may be as a lion asleep, but at last the lion will awake and roar upon the sinner, end quote. That is exactly correct. When we see the wicked prospering, when you are in the world, when you have to deal with wicked co-workers and neighbors and you read all these things in the paper and people are robbing churches and kicking in doors and all of this stuff and you're thinking, oh man, where is God? Why does he allow all of this evil to continue? Just so his judgment can be that much more sure. The reality of these things does not prove God is unjust. It proves that he is patient, long-suffering, merciful, and gracious towards undeserving sinners. That's what it tells us. When people say, well, if there is a God, why is there so much evil in the world? Answer, because God is gracious, patient, long-suffering, and merciful. That is why. And that's why Peter says what he does two verses later in verse 9 of chapter 3. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The staying of God's wrath is not injustice, but love, mercy, and grace. And these attributes, though great, towards unbelievers, are not forever towards unbelievers. They will run out towards the unrepentant. Another problem people have with the justice of God is to understand how God could be loving and just at the same time. You ever wonder that? You, you read these texts that, that say God is love and God so loved the world and, and you think to yourself, well, you know, well, God loves us. He, he loves everyone. And so how could God be just towards everyone all the time and loving towards everyone all the time? Well, A.H. Strong, in his systematic theology, makes a very clear statement when he says that it is not true that God hates the sin and loves the sinner. You've probably heard that phrase. It's common, you know, hate the sin and love the sinner. Strong says, God both hates and loves the sinner himself. He hates him as he is a living and willful antagonist of the truth and holiness. 
loves him as he is a creature capable of good and ruined by his transgression. We often think of God as loving people unconditionally, but we fail to also acknowledge that he hates all sinners unconditionally too. We can't just pick and choose what attributes we want to look at. He has to hate both the sin and the sinner, and to fail to do so would be to sin and contradict his own nature. People are very quick to go to texts like John 3.16, but they don't go to Psalm 5. Psalm 5 verses 3 through 6 says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. He abhors him. He hates him. Psalm 11, 5 through 7 reminds us, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. The very reason God hates sin and sinners is because he is righteous. And to love sin and to love these willful rebels would be to contradict his nature. You think, well, doesn't it say he loves? Yes, he loves. Well, isn't that a contradiction of his nature? Well, it would seem so. It would seem so. But in the church today, what has happened is we have taken God and we've redefined him as only love. We go to John, it says God is love, as if he is only love, but he is not. He is not only love. He is infinitely loving, but he is not only loving. He is just as much just as he is loving. And both of these attributes of God function simultaneously towards all people. He cannot treat you or me unjustly at any time. He must fulfill his statement that he will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. But being loving, he also extends to us grace, mercy, and compassion but never in the exclusion of justice. He must punish sin. He hates sin and the sinner. We just read it. You ask yourself, well, Jack, how does this work? How does this work? Well, that's why we're here this morning. Strong gives us this example. He pulls this from the Civil War. There was uh, Dr. Kirk, who is uh, um, one of the... uh, statesman i think for the um oh not the rebels but the what who who are the people up north union there we go um i was thinking you know that the people up north the non-rebels whatever they were um (laughs) he speaks of dr kirk and dr kirk said this god knows that we love the rebels but god also knows that we will kill them if they do not lay down their arms How is that? 
How can God both love the sinner and yet also judge the sinner whom he loves? Because he is both infinitely just and infinitely loving. Strong goes on to say the complex nature of God not only permits but necessitates this same double treatment of the sinner. And the earthly father experiences the same conflict of emotion when his heart yearns over the corrupt son who he is compelled to banish from his household. You have a son who's in rebellion, who's disrespectful to your wife, who's just in sin and bringing all this wickedness into your house. You love him, but you banish him from your house. The same is true of God. He loves the sinner. He hates the sinner and the sin. Both and, not either or. So God will rectify all things in the end so they conform to his justice. And this is what his rectoral or rectifying justice is. And it is distributive in that it gives to each their just due, but not always in the exact same way, the exact same ten, um, sentence, or the exact same time, although he must be just. Now let me take you to a few scriptures that speak of God's justice. There are so many in the Bible that I think if we tried to look at them all in an hour, we couldn't even read them all. Let me just give you a sampling here. And this will seal the point that God is just. In Deuteronomy 32.4, when Moses is kind of singing his song of proclamation about God, Moses says this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. God, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. In Job 34.12, Job cries out, surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Psalm 89.14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Now, do you see that right there? That's a great text. What did he say? Righteousness... Doing right and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Do you see that? Justice and love in parallel at the same time. Not just love, not just justice, but justice and love. Isaiah 45, 21 Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? It is I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one beside me. Isaiah 45 speaks of God as this righteous or just God. The Hebrew word is the same in many cases. Translated justice or righteousness. In Zephaniah 3.5, the Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. These are just a sampling of texts. God is just. He knows no injustice. Justice is the foundation of his throne. He is always acting in perfect justice all the time. Just like in all of his other attributes, he is always acting all the time. He rules the universe 
distributing both judgment and rewards to every man according to their deeds. So now that we've seen, we'll talk a little about justice, seen that God is just, let's talk about how you need to live in light of God's justice. There are many things here. I want to give you eight points, eight points that you can apply to your life about the justice of God. The first thing you need to know is you can't escape being judged. Think about that. Every one of us will be judged. Every one of us. Psalm 96.13 says, We are to sing before the Lord, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. What's interesting about that psalmist is we are to sing, rejoice, cry out that God is coming to judge everyone on the earth, including us. What in your estimation is the most well-known verse in the Bible. John 3.16. And if you wanted to ask somebody, you know, tell me a verse that talks about God's love for the world. What would they tell you? John 3.16. Turn to John 3.16. I know you have it all memorized, but do you have verses 17 through 19 memorized? The context, we are quick to point out, it's not good to pull verses out of context, but not very many people know the context of the most well-known verse, John 3.16. So let's look at it. You talk to somebody about God being just, being the judge, and the first thing, well, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They go, yeah, but he's also the judge. Well, you know, John 3.17, which comes right after that, tells us, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And most Christians would go, oh, well, maybe he is only loving. He, he's not the judge. Maybe, maybe, okay, well, it says it. But you need to know what the following context says. Look at John 3.16. Let's read the context. John 3.16 through 19 reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Implied, some will be judged and perished but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Speaking of his first coming, his first coming, not his second coming. 18, he who believes in him is not judged. What happens if you don't believe? He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. It just so happens that in the very text that is often plucked out of context to support God's unconditional love for sinners is a text that is in fact more a text about judgment than love. Love is mentioned one time. Judgment is mentioned five. Five times. And that proportion is pretty standard in all the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's about a 10 to 1 ratio between the judgment of God and the love of God. In fact, this was Paul's message to the Gentiles. Sure, Christ will come at the beginning humble as a sacrifice to lay down his life and not to judge. But the second time, 
He comes back as judge of the living and the dead. And don't forget it. Because it's going to happen and you're going to be there. Acts 17, 30 and 31, Paul speaking to the Gentiles at Athens says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed heir, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. Now think about this. Paul's message to the unbelieving Gentiles was, you need to repent because the judge is coming back and the proof of that is he raised him from the dead. That was Paul's gospel message. Try it with somebody sometime. That's what Paul told them. You need, God is commanding you to repent because if he has fixed a day when he's going to judge all men through a man who he's appointed, Christ Jesus, and he furnished proof by raising him from the dead. And you know what? Some believed, some rejected. The point of application for you is this. You will be judged. You will be judged. But you can escape being found guilty before God, the judge. This is our second point. This is a good thing. Francis Turton, in his work, The Institutes of Electric Theology, made this important observation. Justice demands necessarily that all sin should be punished, but does not equally demand that it should be punished in the very person sinning or at such a time and in such a degree. It's distributive. And what Turretin is saying is this. He is saying within the justice of God, God has allowed in his perfect moral standard for someone else who is perfect and willing to pay the penalty of another. What this is called is vicarious substitution. A vicar is one who stands in place of another. A lot of times you hear it used in the Catholic Church where, you know, he is the, the Pope is the vicar of Christ. What does that mean? Well, he represents Christ here on earth. But a vicar in general is anybody who stands in the place of another. And a vicarious substitute is somebody who willingly substitutes himself for another. In relationship to sinners, in relationship to Christ, Christ is the willing one who willingly decides to take the punishment of others upon himself in their stead. That is what vicarious substitution is. You ask yourself, where can you find a perfect person who's willing to suffer the wrath of God in my place? They are hard to find. There's only one, and it's Christ. He is the one mediator between God and men. And one of the classic texts on this is Romans 3. Turn there, Romans 3. Romans 3, verse 23 through 26. Now, Paul has just finished going on and on about how 
how all men are sinners. And so he's kind of concluded, he's going to conclude here in verse 23 that everybody's a sinner. So he's talked about Jews and moral people and all men being sinners. And then he's going to make this statement in verse 23, which is kind of the end of his all men are sinners treaties in chapter 1 through 3. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, which is to be made right before God as a gift... That is something unearned, something that you don't pay for, freely given, by his grace, unearned and undeserved favor, through the redemption that is to the purchasing, the the ability of Christ to purchase people, which is in Christ Jesus, because Christ died on the cross, he's able to purchase or redeem men from the consequences of their sin. And then speaking of Christ in verse 25, it says of Christ, whom God displayed publicly, that is, God is the one who sent Christ to display publicly as a propitiation, a big word that means that which satisfies the wrath of God. He put Christ up publicly, displayed him publicly to show the satisfaction of his wrath in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate, now notice, the death of Christ on the cross in the world was to demonstrate something, his righteousness. What what does that mean? It means this, God is so righteous, he is so just, he has to punish sin. And so what he's saying here is that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, lived in this world a perfect life, and offered himself up on the cross as a sacrifice to show the world that he was righteous and just. That by no means he would allow the guilty to go unpunished. He goes on to say, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed... For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see that? God would be just because he executed the sentence of judgment. And he would be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus, then Jesus suffers your penalty and gives you his righteousness vicarious substitution so even though it is beyond a doubt you will be judged when you are judged you can stand perfectly holy and blameless before God if you are willing to repent if you are willing to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins was buried and rose again on the third day if you turn from your wicked way and follow hard after Christ trusting him only to save you from your sins he will then save you and you will be holy and blameless before him so that even though you are judged there is nothing condemning that's why Romans 8 1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Third, know that the Savior, the loving Savior, is also the judge. Know that the loving Savior is also the judge. 
You must not forget that your Savior is the very judge of heaven and earth. I mean, we read it in Acts 17.31. He's appointed a man, what? To judge the living and the dead. John 5.22 says that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Romans 2.15, Paul speaks of the day when God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul charges Timothy in the presence of Christ, Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and is appearing in his kingdom. They're all the way through the scriptures. Jesus is the judge and the Savior. Packer, commenting on Jesus as both judge and savior, says, quote, Paul refers to the fact that we must all appear before the judgment seat as the terror of the Lord. That's how Paul describes it, the terror of the Lord. Doesn't sound very fun. And well, might he. Jesus, Lord, like his father, is holy and pure, and we are neither. We live under his eye, and he knows our secrets. And on judgment day, the whole of our past life will be played back, as it were, before him and brought under review. If we know ourselves at all, we know we are not fit to face him. What then are we to do? The New Testament answer is call on the coming judge to be your present savior. As judge, he is the law, but as savior, he is the gospel. Run from him now and you will meet him as judge later and that without hope, end quote. Thomas Watson succinctly put it this way, Christ has a golden scepter and a rod of iron and they who will not willingly bow to the one now shall be crushed by the other later. The application for you is clear. If you have not run to Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, it's time. Because he will come like a thief in the night. And if you reject him now and you die or he comes, it will be over. For Christ the Savior will become Christ the Judge. Four, you are saved by grace and judged by works. This has been a troubling concept to many people. This has been uh, something that has worried many people. You know, you read all these scriptures that, you know, by grace you are saved through faith, and he did not save us by deeds which we have done in righteousness. And and, and all of these these verses that talk about salvation not being of works, by gift that no one can boast. And then you read all these passages that talk about being judged by works. How is that? If you're saved by grace, then how can you be judged by works? Well, the answer is not that difficult. You look at 2 Corinthians 5.10, you read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 1 Peter 1.17, For if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on the earth according to each one's work. Revelation 22.12, right at the, almost the very end of the Bible, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. You're thinking, how does this work? This is a mind hemorrhage. What's happening? Well... The answer to the question is this. Believers and unbelievers will all be judged by their works. But believers are only judged 
by their good deeds done as believers in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. You say, well, why is that? Because in Christ, all of your sins are forgiven and washed away. What happens is when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, all of the sins you have ever committed in the past, all of those sins have been washed away. They have been atoned for in his blood and forgiven. And so when God plays back your life, the only thing you see is all these good things you did for the glory of God and the power of the Spirit as a believer. Everything else is gone. Why? Because nothing else counts for the glory of God. The believer, the unbeliever on the other hand, because he does nothing for God's glory, everything he does is for himself, all his deeds are but filthy rags in God's sight, that person is judged for everything he did, even things that in society seem to be good. And he stands before God and he is judged for everything he ever did because none of it brought glory to God. Application is clear. You will be judged by your works. So do as many as you can as a believer by God's grace for his glory and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you aren't a believer, become one. Five, you need to know that God's judgment brings both wrath and reward. We've seen the wrath part. And usually when we think of God's judgment, we think of it as just always bringing, you know, judgment upon sinners. Well, it just so happens that God's judgment goes both ways. Not only are the guilty punished, but the righteous are rewarded. This is great. This is amazing when you think about it. How many deeds do you do in your own power which count for the glory of God? None. If you are not walking in the Spirit, if you are not using God's means of grace that He has given you to live your life for His glory, nothing accounts. So the only things that count for God's glory are the things God does through us, and when we do those things, He rewards us for it? It would be like me... Uh, hire, it'd be like you hiring me to paint your house. The only problem is I'm a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. And I've never put an ad in the paper saying, looking to paint houses. I can't even lift my arm. And yet you come to me, even though I have not sought you, and you seek me out. And you say, hey, I want you to paint my house. And, and I say, well, I, you know... <laughs> I don't want to paint your house. I can't paint your house. But you offer me a deal that I can't refuse. So I accept your offer. You supply the transportation to your house. You supply the paint. You supply the equipment. You do all the prep work. You simply um, give me everything I need. You give me food. You give me water. You take my hand. You put the brush in it. You stick it in the pail. You grab my hand and you give me the strength to move it up and down and to paint your front door, your house. And every step of the way, you are with me. For without you, I can do nothing. And then... After you have empowered me and given me all the resources I need to paint your house, you pay me for it. 
That's what the Bible teaches. Without Christ, you can do nothing. But Christ gives you everything you need, and if you rely on Him and you trust in Him, He will empower you to do everything He wants you to do, and then He's going to reward you for it at Judgment Day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, turn there. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul is dealing here with personality cults. People are going, well, I am of Paul. And people go, well, I am of Apollos. Well, yeah, Paul baptized me. And say, well, yeah, but Apollos taught me, you know, the Ten Commandments. You know, Paul, Apollos led me to the Lord, but Paul baptized me. And there was division in the church over Paul and Apollos. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that he's nothing. And look at what it says in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Even as, notice this, the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Notice who's supplying the opportunity. God. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything. That's you. That's me. But God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You're kidding me. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God which was given to me. Like a wise master builder, I laid the foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Did you see that? Paul and Apollos labored, but they labored as God gave the opportunity, strength, salvation, and sanctification. And then they were rewarded for it. That is amazing. Application? God will reward you for the work you do in his power for his glory. So do as much as you can. Six, you will be judged according to what you are given. The scriptures teach that God's judgment takes into account what we have, not what we don't have. A lot of times we look at other people and we say, oh, look at all that person is being used to the Lord. And, you know, I'm, you know, insignificant so-and-so. Well, listen, that person that you see being used in a great way may be functioning at 50% capacity. You may be functioning to 90% of the capacity of the resources God has given you. And when judgment day comes and you stand there to get your reward, that person that you thought God was using in such big ways because he was up front preaching may be so far back at the end of the line you won't, won't even be able to see them. And then, you know, these mothers who raised eight kids and taught them the scriptures, they're going to be way, way up front. The parable of the talents teaches the principle to whom much is given, much is required. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8.12, speaking of giving, says, Giving is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So, the application, to whom much is given, much is required. This means your house, your furnishings, your job, your finances, your skills, your life, your health, 
Everything you have is a resource. Are you using it for the glory of God? The more you use that for the glory of God now, the more rewards you will be able to receive later, and the greater you will be able to praise God for all he did in and through you. Seven, God is presented in the New Testament as a God of justice, judgment, and wrath. You think, well, no kidding. Well, some of Erroneus have believed that in the Old Testament, God was a God of justice and wrath. But in the New Testament, he's the God of grace. Actually, the exact um, opposite is true if you want to go by proportions. If you want to really talk about, okay, let's compare the greatest acts of God's judgment in the Old Testament to those in the New Testament, the New Testament wins. Wrath such as the world has never seen or shall see since creation, since the beginning of the world, the tribulation. And you, if you are thinking that God is just this God who's only love and, and not a just, you just need to read the Gospels, read what Jesus says, read First and Second Thessalonians, read Hebrews chapter 10, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. Read Second Peter and Jude and Revelation. Or the greatest expressions of wrath and judgment are written. So yes, people do erroneously believe that God of the Old Testament was this mean ogre. Uh, you know, he was just and wrathful there, but now he's a God of grace. It's only because they haven't read their Bible. Eight. You should live just lives. This is the, the main application we'll send you out with. Isaiah 33, 15 through 16 says this. He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity, he who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe, He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil, he will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him and his water will be sure. You ask yourself, how do I apply this? Micah 6.8 tells you, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's how justice applies to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all we've learned this morning. I know it's been a lot. There's so much to learn about your justice in the scriptures because your scriptures talk about it so frequently more than pretty much any other topic. And Father, we want to praise you for your just and holy and righteous nature. We long for the day when you come back to judge the living and the dead through a man whom you have appointed heir, having furnished proof by raising from the dead. Father, if there are people here who are living under your wrath and judgment now because they will not accept Christ as their Savior, may they do so today. May they humble themselves now in their hearts and may they ask you to forgive them. May they make a covenant to turn from their wicked way and to follow you and to receive Jesus Christ that they might be saved. And Father, may all of us live like you are to be humble and just and righteous before you because we know that is your will. 
Amen.